Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dress, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Today, we are revisiting another Dressed episode from the archives or the Dressed wardrobe, have you? Our interview with Melissa Leventon about the sartorial stylings and legacy of one of the world's great fashion icons, and that is Queen Siddiket of Thailand. Now the Queen Mother, today Her Majesty remains the embodiment of style and sophistication, a standard she set 72 years ago when she came into the national spotlight. And that was, of course, after her marriage to the King of Thailand in 1950. Yes, Her Majesty will be celebrating her 90th birthday this year. And in tribute, we revisit one of our very favorite episodes celebrating her extraordinary life. We hope you enjoy. The queen intoxicates those around her with her magic, wrote Vogue of Queen Sirikit on February 15, 1965. When she speaks softly, slowly, a golden, off-key music, it is as though all the temple bells were ringing. I think we can all agree we need a little magic in our lives these days, don't you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Including a magic photograph of the queen, which reveals her seated on a gold-leaf tie bed in, quote, a dress of 20-carat gold embossed in crystal, appears to be paved in diamonds, canary and white diamonds, on her hair, her throat, her wrists, her tapering fingers. This court dress, which the queen wore to the Greek royal wedding, was created for her by Pierre Balmain, who designs her superb Paris and Bangkok clothes, her shoes, and her royal umbrellas. So my interest in the relationship between Queen Sirikit and French haute couturier Pierre Balmain was first peaked last season in an interview we had with Kimberly Crispin Campbell. Uh, Kimberly featured a story about the Queen and Balmain in her book, Worn on This Day, and we did an episode on it. And when I inquired of the topic further, she directed me to her friend and colleague, Melissa Leventon, who also happens to be today's guest. As a specialist in European and American costume and textiles, Melissa Leventon is a curator author, lecturer, teacher, and a founding partner of Curatrix Museum Group, Consultants and Appraisers, formerly the curator in charge of textiles at the Fine Arts Museum of San Francisco. Melissa currently teaches fashion history and fashion theory at California College of the Arts, and since 2006, she has been a senior consultant to the Queen Sirikit Museum of Textiles in Bangkok, and we are super excited to learn all about the styles fit for a queen, Melissa Welcome to Dressed. Melissa, welcome to Dressed. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Thanks so much, Cassidy. It's really a pleasure to be here. And we are here to talk today about the incredible style and sartorial legacy of Queen Siddiket of Thailand, this seminal figure who is integral in contributing to Thailand's positive image internationally in the latter half of the 20th century um, and into today, of course. And part and parcel to these relationships was what the Queen wore, clothing that simultaneously promoted her Thai heritage, culture, and as we will discuss shortly, French Haute Couture. Um, 
For those of us who might not know, however, um, let's start with introductions. So who is Queen Syedicate? And I say is because the queen will be celebrating her 88th birthday in August. She will indeed. Uh, queen Syedicate is now the queen mother of Thailand. Um, she's the mother of the current king, King Maha Wajiralongkorn, otherwise known as King Rama X. Queen Sirikit was the wife of King Rama the Ninth. Uh, King Pumipon Adunyadet was his name, who passed away in 2016, so three years ago now. But she was Queen of Thailand from 1950 on. So she was for more than half a century um, the only queen that most Thais knew. And she kind of established the style of Thai royal women for Westerners as well. And I'm hoping actually you can we can go back a little bit further into the 19th century and maybe tell us a little bit about what Thai dress was traditionally and, you know, how it became Westernized over the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Absolutely. Thailand, of course, is in Southeast Asia. And for any of your listeners who have been there, you know, it's hot. It's tropical. (laughs) And so the tradition of clothing in Thailand was what we call draped and wrapped. Think a sari. Uh, which obviously is Indian national dress or traditional dress. And so ties wore something similar, usually a hip wrapper. That's a large, wide cloth that is wrapped around the waist or the hips and pleated and tied and folded. It can be arranged in a variety of ways, including into what looks kind of like a pair of puffy breeches or bloomers. In Thai, that's called chonkraben, um, and that was common in the 19th century for both men and women to wear their hip wrappers that way. Men often were then bare-chested. Women might wear a breast wrapper to cover the breasts or a shoulder cloth, which might or might not cover the breasts. So their uh, torsos were naked or semi-naked, their arms were naked, their feet were bare. In the 19th century, the fashionable hairstyle in Thailand for both men and women was called the lotus style, which it actually looks very punk to us today, but it's short on top and short on the sides mostly as well, occasionally with a long lock in front or a longer lock in front. And so to Western eyes, this looked very strange. This didn't look at all like what Westerners expected civilized men and women to look like. Uh, And the 19th century, of course, was a great age of European colonization activity in a variety of non-Western parts of the world, including Southeast Asia. And so King Mongkut, who reigned from 1853 to 1868, so essentially during the Civil War period in the United States, and his son, King Chulalongkorn, who reigned from 1868 to 1910, strategically turned their faces towards the West. This was a way, in part, of avoiding colonization by France, England, the Netherlands, any of the countries that were active in colonizing Southeast Asia. And one of the strategies that they employed to keep colonizers at bay was to westernize the dress of the Thai court. So starting from this point 
of hip wrappers, breast wrappers, shoulder cloth, short hair for both sexes, what you find is that gradually, led by the king, um, and this was especially true from the time that King Chulalongkorn ascended in 1868. He was only 15. So he was very, very young, but he was, he was amazing. A very smart man, a very shrewd man, a very good ruler. He was beloved for a reason, and his effort was successful. He basically led the charge to begin to wear certain Western garments. And what you find throughout the 19th century, or through the second half of the 19th century, is that tie dress becomes hybrid. And so what you have um, is Western on top and tie on the bottom. So the king adopted Western-style jackets. The women of the court following him adopted Western-style bodices that were then worn underneath their shoulder cloths or breast wrappers. So it looked essentially as if you had the kind of bodice you would have with a Western two-piece dress of say, let's say the 1860s or 1870s, underneath a kind of diagonal sash that went across uh, the torso um, from the upper left shoulder to the lower right hip, for instance. So that was the Western on top. So all of those parts of the body that used to be naked were now covered according to Western mores for dress. On the bottom, women still wore hip wrappers, but those looked like skirts. So Westerners had no problem with that. Um, and women also wore chonkraben which Westerners, I think, probably found a little odd, but because they also coupled those with stockings and Western-style shoes instead of bare legs and bare feet, then I think Westerners didn't necessarily find it particularly strange because the body was being covered um, in the way Westerners expected the body to be covered. Women also gradually started to grow their hair a bit longer, uh, while men kept theirs shorter. And so you began to have that aspect of a visual separation between the sexes, according to Western ideas of what was appropriate as well. Um, all of this was in aid of convincing the West that the ties were their equals, politically, socially, culturally, that they could sign treaties, that they could be dealt with as equals for trade reasons, for political reasons, and also, therefore, that they were not ripe for colonization. This was only one portion of a pretty global effort by the Thai royal family in order to keep the Westerners away from Thailand. And there were Western considerations as well, but the end result is it was successful. Thais are still proud of the fact that they are the only country in Southeast Asia that was never colonized. Wow. And into the 20th century, right, Western dress gradually more and more replaced Thai dress, at least in the upper classes. Am I right about that? That's right. So by the time of Queen Siddiquit's marriage to King Bhumipan in 1950, you know, this evolution in dress had resulted in the obfuscation of any clear Thai national costume. And this is actually something that Queen Siddiquit was instrumental in changing. And can you please tell us about her early efforts to really create a new national dress for Thailand and why it was important to her? You know, this would become one of her greatest legacies as we will discuss more 
later in this interview. Indeed. Um, let me actually take a step a little further back in history to finish the story about the westernization of Thai dress. The court had completely westernized by about 1930. Um, you see hybrids through in women in particular, who are almost always slower uh, to make these kinds of changes than men are. So the women had fully westernized by about 1930, um, led by the new young queen, Rambai Barney, um, who was married to King Rama VII. So by the time Queen Siddiquit came along 20 years later, there was nothing left, and most urban ties had stopped wearing any of the traditional Thai hip wrappers or breast wrappers or shoulder cloths. And so when it came time for the king and queen, Thailand's young, attractive, brand new monarchs to travel abroad, the queen wanted something that she could wear that would speak to her national and cultural identity as Thai. And it's interesting because both she and the king were raised um, in part abroad. King Pumipan was raised in Switzerland. He was born actually in Massachusetts. His father was studying medicine at Harvard. And so he was born in 1927 in uh, the U.S. I believe he is the only king ever to be born on American soil. And he did go back to Thailand when he was young, but the family moved to Switzerland when he was still quite a small boy. And he essentially grew up in Europe. Her Majesty's father was Thai ambassador to France and England in the 1940s. And in fact, the two of them met each other in Europe. And so they both had European backgrounds. They were very accustomed to wearing Western dress. They were raised wearing Western dress. But when they, they decided to come back to the West in 1960, the Queen felt that it was incumbent upon her to project a Thai identity through her dress. And one of the ways she wanted to do that was to develop a new national dress. If you think about it, the idea of national dress is relatively new, um, and it exists kind of in opposition to Western dress, which much of the world wears in one way or another. So national dress is what might have been called in an earlier time simply local dress or regional dress. It was what people in any given region wore, and it varied region to region to region. But Thailand by 1960 was uh, a united nation. And so the queen's idea was to go back to the court dress of King Chulalongkorn's period in particular. Look at all of the old photographs of the women of that court and to devise something that would function as a signal of Thainess, but also would function in a modern kind of way. So she assembled a team of advisors and several dressmakers 
and uh, they basically started to experiment. They looked at photographs. They, the queen went actually into the royal treasury where a lot of uh, relics from the earlier reigns are stored, a lot of textiles, uh, a lot of garments that King Chulalongkorn bought in his trips to Europe in the 1890s. And the queen took inspiration from all of that, and she and her advisors and her dressmakers came up with what started out as a group of five garments that riffed on aspects of historic Thai court dress. In particular, you can see the hip wrapper and its front pleat, called a nana, in some of Thai national dress. You can also see the breast wrapper or shoulder cloth, um, called a sabai, in some of Thai national dress. So design-wise, it's there. And in terms of the textile, since it generally uses the kind of gold brocade that was imported in great quantities from India and southern Thailand, and uh, in some cases from China, that was worn extensively by the court in the 19th century. Modern Thai national dress often uses that as well, but it's constructed according to Western tailoring methods. So it zips up the back, uh, the collars hook. You don't have to wrap it and rewrap it every time. And so it was functional for a modern queen who was going from city to city to city and changing her dress three or four times a day and didn't necessarily have the time to properly wrap or drape an historic garment or series of garments, but could definitely step into a sheath that looked like historic court dress, but actually functioned like a modern Western evening gown. So she came up with five variations that spoke to different times of day and also different levels of formality, from very casual to quite formal. And those functioned for her for the state visits that their majesties started taking in the very late 1950s. And then three more variations on the more formal end came into being early in the 1960s. And those were contributed to by Pierre Belmont and Francois Lesage. Which we are about to get into. And dress listeners, I just have to say that, you know, those of us who can't make it to Thailand, there are two books that Melissa wrote in royal fashion, the style of Queen Sirikit of Thailand and fit for a queen, Her Majesty Queen Sirikit's creations by Balmain. And you can see all of these exquisite garments in the queen's collection for yourself. So um, you will have to check those out because it's one thing to imagine it and then to see it in person. I mean, they are just all so incredibly stunning. So for this young queen, especially, what she wore was integral in influencing how the rest of the world, you know, really actually literally saw Thailand. This high-profile royal couple, as you mentioned, they traveled quite extensively on state visits, but it was really this 1960 tour of Europe and America in particular that resulted in, as you just mentioned, this decades-long partnership made for fashion history heaven. And could you please tell us about the relationship between Queen Sirikit and the French haute couturier Pierre Balmain and how this relationship really ensured this 1960s tour was this, it, it really was this resounding success. 
So coming into 1960, the king and queen and their advisors had planned a 15-country tour starting in the U.S. They spent a month here, and then they went to Europe and spent months um, going to 14 other countries. And so this was, although both the king and queen grew up essentially in Europe, this was the first time they were coming to Europe as the ruler's the monarchs of Thailand. It was it was as if they were they were brand new people and these were brand new relationships. And so they wanted to make the proper impression. This was based on a similar trip in 1897 taken by King Chulalongkorn where he went to Europe and essentially just wowed uh, Europeans with his charm, his bearing, his intelligence, um, and his wardrobe. He had wonderful European tailored clothes, and there are lots of pictures of him surviving as well. So King Pumipan and Queen Sirikit essentially were aiming to do a modern version of that tour. And so King Chulalongkorn had not come to the United States, which was not a global player at that time. But in 1960, the U.S. was very much a global player. Um, and Thailand and the U.S. had very warm relationships. And so it was natural that they would come to the U.S. and we're a big country and they spent a lot of time here. So the queen wanted to make the right impression. She wanted to be properly dressed for European and American expectations. And in order to do that, she felt she needed a Western fashion designer. Um, she had Thai dressmakers and designers, and one of them, um, Kunying Urai Lurumrung, advised her that there was nobody in Thailand who could produce the kind of wardrobe that she would need in order to be dressed properly for this grand state visit. And so it was decided that she would basically consider Pierre Belmain. And the way the Queen put it in a memoir about this, the state visits, Balmain was recommended to her by Kunying Urai as somebody whose clothing was very smart and very fashionable. But in reality, I think she knew exactly who Balmain was right. because she had been in France as a teenager when her father was the Thai ambassador to France. She was in Paris in the 40s, right around the time that Balmain left Lucien Lelong and hung out his shingle in 1946. And and was getting an enormous amount of very admiring press coverage. So I think she learned about him then, um, before she married the king. And we also know from several of the logbooks that survive in the royal archives that were lent to us for research purposes, that she was occasionally given fashion magazines, French magazines like Officielle de la Couture, as uh, New Year's gifts and birthday gifts. And Balmain featured prominently in almost every single issue of those in the late 1950s. So I'm reasonably certain that she was quite familiar with his work and had probably already made up her own mind about whether he seemed like a good fit in terms of what she had seen of his work. Coincidentally and fortuitously, Balmain stopped in Bangkok in 1959, earlier in the year, on his way back from a vacation 
and he did not meet the queen at that time. But he was introduced to a to a Frenchman who was then in Thailand working as an interior designer, a man named Francois Duo. And the two of them had a mutual friend who basically gave Belmont a letter of introduction. And so Francois Duo took Belmont under his wing and introduced him around. And he met Kunying Urai. He met Jim Thompson. And Jim Thompson founded the Thai Silk Company. Jim Thompson was an expatriate American who had settled in Bangkok, and he founded the Thai Silk Company, essentially to revive and promote traditional Thai silk fabric. He hired a bunch of weavers from his neighborhood, and he was producing beautiful hand-woven textiles and selling them both in Thailand but also internationally, because, of course, he was an American. American, and he had American connections. And Jim Thompson was as famous for his hospitality as he was for his textiles. And so Bellman met Jim Thompson. He was invited to dinner at Jim Thompson's amazing Thai house, which is a museum and is open to the public for any of your listeners who happen wow. to be headed to Bangkok <laughs> anytime soon. It's well worth visit. They might be after this episode. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, Jim Thompson's uh, traditional Thai houses filled with Thai antiques are really wonderful to visit. So uh, Bellman went to dinner there, probably on several occasions. And he also met one of the queen's ladies-in-waiting, who was also her cousin, a woman named Princess Vipavati Rangsit. And Princess Vipa, very influential lady-in-waiting. She was older than Her Majesty. And I think the Queen relied very much on her advice and her counsel. So during this trip in early 1959, Bauman met almost all the key players in this story, except for Her Majesty herself. And so when it became time to look for a couturier, Bauman had already met Kunying Urai. He'd met Princess Vipa and he'd met Jim Thompson. And he'd been invited back to Bangkok by another royal relation. Uh, a woman named Princess Chumpot. And so what the queen did is she sent him a letter, which basically said, the next time you're in Thailand, please call on me at the palace. And so this essentially was a no-risk situation for her because Bellman was already coming back to Bangkok at the invitation of Princess Chumpot. So if the queen looked him over in person and decided that he wasn't the right fit, then you know, basically she had not summoned him to wait on her at the palace. It was a little more casual than that. It was essentially when you're in town, drop by. <laughs> so, and of course, as soon as he got this letter, he immediately booked his plane ticket to come back to Thailand, <laughs> as you would. Certainly I would if I got a summons uh, from Queen Siddiqui. And so Bellman arrived back in fall of 1959. He met with the queen several times. And obviously, there was a meeting of the minds. He brought, I'm sure, his sketchbooks. He spent some time talking with her and learning about what her taste was. He, I'm sure, uh, shared his ideas about what her wardrobe might be with her. He met with the king. And in fact, 
the king is the person who essentially awarded him the job of designing the queen's wardrobe. And in fact, he was, I think, an excellent choice, if not really the only logical choice for her at the time. Because if you think about it, there are specific requirements that royal women have uh, for their dress that ordinary people don't have. They have to essentially, A, they have to meet people's expectations for what should a queen look like. That's what Queen Sudakit was grappling with. What should a Thai queen look like? Well, she needed to look Thai for starters. And so how do you do that in terms of dress. One of the ways you do that is by wearing Thai textiles. Balma, unlike somebody like Chanel, was willing to work with Thai textiles. He was essentially willing to let the queen mandate textiles specifically. He knew Jim Thompson. He'd already bought some Jim Thompson silk to use in his regular collection. So he was open to Thai textiles in the queen's dress. Balmain's style tended to be classic, very clean lines. He didn't follow fads too much. He didn't go to fashion extremes. And so that was also something that the queen felt comfortable with, I think, because she's not going to go to fashion extremes. She's a queen. She needs to look dignified. Her look needs to be classic. She needed to wear clothes that wouldn't date too quickly because she was going to be wearing this wardrobe for eight months in Europe and the United States. Bellman, by the time he met the Queen, had designed clothes for 40 movies. And so he was accustomed to processing large orders very quickly. And he was accustomed to designing clothes that would look fashionable, but that wouldn't look dated because there was usually, you know, a 12 to 18 month gap between the time the clothes were made and the time the movie came out. And so any designer who has designed for movies will tell you that that's always a consideration. <laughs> yes. So Bauman had those kinds of skills and outlook as well. And at the time, he was the second or third largest couturier in Paris. Um, he had 600 people working for him. 450 on the couture side and 150 on the ready-to-wear side. He had not only the actual couture ateliers, but he had an in-house millinery. He had an in-house furrier. Um, and he had uh, very close connections with Rene Mancini, although he sounds Italian, he was in fact French, who was a very highly regarded a bespoke shoemaker who provided a lot of the shoes for the runway shows at the couture houses in Paris. And so Balma essentially was equipped to provide pretty much anything the queen needed to do it on her timeline and to do it in a way that she felt very comfortable with. So I think he was an inspired choice of designer for her. And it's a partnership that worked out very, very well. Oh, and I forgot to add, he had other royal and aristocratic clients, so he understood what they would require. And he was 20 years older than the queen, and so he was able to advise her about royal protocol in a way that she didn't necessarily know. Because at the time she was living in Europe, she was um, you know, a descendant of the Thai royal family. She was essentially a Thai aristocrat, but she was not yet a member of the immediate royal family. 
And so the kinds of royal protocol surrounding her as queen were not surrounding her as uh, Princess Sirikit Kiriakara. Can you just tell us a little bit about the process of preparing the queen's wardrobe for this trip? Because obviously this is not something that happened very quickly. (laughs) He was in Paris. She was in Bangkok. I mean, this could not have been an easy feat to make all of these garments and these decisions being so far apart. How do they make that work? Well, it's a good question. We don't entirely know because one of the things that I did not find when I was doing the research for Fit for a Queen was any correspondence between the two of them or any sketches that Bellman had sent to the Queen. I was sure I was going to find something. I was positive, but nothing to this day, as far as I know, nothing has come to light. So what I think happened is that in October of 1959, when Bellman was in Bangkok, he and the queen had a number of conversations about what she wanted, about the colors that she liked, about the fabrics that she would like. I think he bought a lot of the textiles that he used for her clothes um, from Jim Thompson while he was there. And there must have been some correspondence that we did not see. Because what happened is, oh, and I also think that he was supplied with the Queen's measurements. And as probably your listeners know, as in, as is standard in couture, when Bellman got back to Paris the workrooms built a dress form to the queen's measurements so that he could essentially do the basic cutting and fitting of the clothes when the queen was not present. And that's that's standard. Not everybody who orders from the couture, certainly then and even now, can physically be there for all of the fitting. So there's almost always a dress form built to your measurements. Um, and that's what's used for a lot of the, the basic uh, cutting, draping, fitting, and then the final fitting will be done on you. And so he traveled at least a couple different times to Bangkok, correct? And didn't she travel to France on one occasion and see one of his shows? She only went to France once, but that was during the state tour. Um, So not until October of 1960. So by then, you know, that was almost the end. The tour ended um, in Switzerland in December. What Bellman did is he went back to Paris in October of 59. He then designed his spring 1960 collection. And I know he must have sent sketches to the Queen because she chose a number of outfits from that collection, either to be made exactly as designed um, or to be made up in different fabrics. Bellman made a lot of them specifically for her in Thai silk. Those were chosen somehow remotely. Also, the Queen's mother was in France for part of this time, and she may have facilitated some of the communication. And it's also possible they talked on the phone. It was, you know, there was long-distance phone service available. It was very expensive, um, but it did exist. So it's possible that discussions happened that way as well. We don't know. But Bellman basically designed the wardrobe, for the queen. It was cut out, the embroidery was done, and it was at least basted together, if not fully fitted. And all of the accessories were ordered. The hats were made, the shoes were made, the undergarments were made. 
and um, the luggage was ordered from Louis Vuitton. Bellman picked up the luggage in May of 1960, packed the wardrobe into it, and he and Eric Mortensen, his uh, assistant, and their chief fitter went to Bangkok. And they spent three weeks at the palace with the queen every other afternoon fitting the wardrobe on her. And there's a series of photographs, some of which are in the book, that we think were taken by the king, who was an enthusiastic and very good photographer, during the fittings, where the queen would try on different dresses with different accessories and different jewelry, and a photograph would be taken, and they would basically make decisions about all of the components of the outfits. Um, and alterations would be made in Kunying Urai's workroom, which was given over to Balmain and Mortensen and their fitter for the duration. That was essentially the three from May 7th to the end of the month. And on the 10th of June, the king and queen took off for Hawaii. So there were a handful of things that were sent back to France for alteration, but most of it was done in Bangkok. So it was kind of an amazing logistical feat. Oh, my God. But that was how they did it. Yeah, and and you write about um, you know the logistics in the book about how involved Balman was in helping her plan and organize what she would wear at certain occasions on on the tour. Like I think you wrote that there was details down to a fabric swatch, that, so they could you know her dressers could easily identify the dress to be worn at this occasion. I mean, it was incredible. It was planned down to the smallest detail because you you had to know. I mean, I think at at one point you said she was in a one city one day, another city another day. So it had to be really, really organized. It did. And she might change three or four times a day. She'd usually start out wearing a suit um, in the morning. um, And she almost always wore a suit when they were arriving in a new place. But she might then have an afternoon engagement and she'd change to an afternoon dress. Then late in the afternoon or early in the evening, she might wear a cocktail dress. And in the evening, she might wear a Thai national dress or a Western evening gown. So, And she might not get back to where she was staying from the time she left early in the morning until late at night. And so she had to pick out all the clothes, make sure that all of the accessories were there that had to go with her. So it was key that her wardrobe attendants, there were two of them, and a third person who just looked after the jewelry. So it's clear that they had to be super organized. So the trunks were all numbered, um, and that was coordinated to an inventory list. There were indeed swatches on the list. So the wardrobe attendants would know exactly what they were looking for and could assemble things very quickly. Bellman taught them how to pack the clothes so they looked just as if they had come from Paris. So they didn't wrinkle, they didn't crease, they didn't snag, so that you could basically get them out, they'd be ready to go, and you could send the queen off for her day, knowing that she had everything with her that she needed. Oh my goodness. And I I do want to talk about the clothes specifically for um, a little bit, just because you mentioned the embroidery, but Balmain's dresses from the 1950s are iconic because of this relationship he had with the Maison Lesage, uh, the embroidery house. I mean, Balmain dresses are exceptional because of that embroidery. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship and how that worked in terms of the Queen's wardrobe that Balmain created for this tour? Because it's pretty incredible. Yes, it's it's amazing. Balmain, of course, had been using Lesage uh, for years. He did use other embroiderers, but Lesage, I think, was one of his primary ones. And certainly for the Queen's wardrobe, he wanted the best. And so Lesage, I think, was a logical choice. 
So he and Lesage would discuss the dress and discuss the embroidery. And Lesage would essentially, you know, make some samples. Lesage essentially would do the design. Belmont often provided visuals to help. He helped provide, for instance, he provided uh, Lesage with uh, examples of traditional Thai motifs from Thai art. And you find a lot of those work their way into the embroidery, even in 1960, but certainly later on in uh, the work for the Queen in the later 60s and the 70s. So the two of them together were jointly occupied in trying to give her clothes as Thai a flavor as possible. Balmain through the textiles, Lesage through the embroidery. And so having given Balmain a bunch of samples, Balmain would make a choice and the two of them would discuss where on each dress the embroidery would be deployed. Um, and Eric Mortensen wrote later in his uh, memoir that sometimes the embroidery helped influence the design of the dress. So it really was a collaboration truly an equal collaboration. The dress would be cut out at Balmain, the pieces would be sent to Lesage, they'd be embroidered, and then they'd be sent back to Balmain to be sewn together into the dress. Only at the end would some of them be sent back to Lesage for final finishing touches. They might then carry the embroidery motifs across a couple of seams. And if you look at some of the photographs in the book, you will see that that is indeed the case with some of her more elaborate embroidered pieces, that the embroidery does go across seam lines. Um, and that is how it was done. Yeah. And I mean, the covers of both of the books I mentioned have these embroidered dresses, um, you know, featured on the front and they are just drop dead gorgeous. You can, it, you can only imagine what it would have been like to see her in person in these incredible garments. Yes. She was a very beautiful woman and she, she's very small. But I think, you know, these would just, I think these may probably even made her look taller. Right. Um, they're, they're so amazing. And she looked so wonderful in them. Yeah. And needless to say, this trip was a huge success. And every detail of her wardrobe seems to have been reported in the fashion press. She was elected to the international best dress list. And I think she made it to the Hall of Fame by 1964. 65. 65. And so her partnership with Balmain actually lasted over two decades. But the Queen later expressed her fear that, quote, all over the world, people know me only for fashion. But, you know, that was just not the case. Her relationship to clothing extended well beyond her well-dressed facade. Can you please tell us about support? I can. So the Queen had started to work with traditional Thai textiles and with the villagers who made them starting in the 1960s. Both King Pumipan and Queen Siddiquit were very concerned with the welfare of ordinary Thais, and both of them created a number of initiatives and projects that would assist Thais in essentially living better giving them access to education, to clean water, to medical assistance, and also to additional forms of of livelihood. A lot of rural ties were then and still are farmers. And many of them are, you know, you're subject as a farmer to whatever the weather does. And if the crop has failed, if you've had floods, if you've had drought, whatever, then, you know, you may not have very much left to sell or even very much to live on. And so the queen was very concerned to try and develop 
uh, traditional Thai crafts to give farmers and their families other sources of income, secondary sources of income, in addition to farming. And so it makes sense that the queen was involved in textiles because she's been very concerned throughout her life with women's initiatives. And textiles, of course, are very associated with women in many cultures, Thailand among them. And so since women are the weavers and the dyers and the raisers of silkworms in Thailand, the queen started to work with traditional silk. And she created in the mid-70s a foundation called the Support Foundation. That's an acronym, and I cannot tell you exactly what the acronym stands for. But basically, the idea behind support was that it was going to help train Ties who wanted to learn to weave, who wanted to learn to embroider, who wanted to learn the dyeing and spinning and silk raising techniques, she would train them. And then the foundation committed to finding a market for the textiles that they produced. And so the queen decided that the best and most effective way that she could market these textiles that people were producing at her behest and under the umbrella of her foundation was to wear them herself. And so starting in the early 1970s, she did something that to us doesn't sound particularly revolutionary, but which in the sort of annals of royal dress is astounding. What she did was instead of wearing the most expensive imported textiles, which traditionally royalty does, you know, people expect to see you beautifully dressed. They don't expect you to show up in a pair of blue jeans and a t-shirt, <laughs> you know, and that was part of the mystique of the queen's wardrobe and why people got so excited about it, it because it was this beautiful haute couture wardrobe, you know, the, the highest level of fashion at that time, made out of beautiful um, gold brocades when they were Thai, Thai silk when they were Thai, but Thai silk at that time, you know, it's it's solid color. So you have the lovely texture in the sheen, but you've got a solid color. You don't have a village style pattern. And this is what the Thai court had worn imported textiles since forever. So the queen suddenly started wearing village textiles, the kind of textile your grandmother in the village might wear, that your grandmother in the village probably made for herself. This was jaw-dropping. Uh, for people, that someone who was the highest woman in the land would wear these very humble, albeit very beautiful and very intricately dyed and woven textiles. So that was just a revolutionary move that she made. And at least for Thailand, it was effective, particularly the style of Thai ikat that's known in Thai as matmi. We think of it as ikat. It's a textile that is dyed before it is woven so that the pattern is dyed onto the warp threads. It's all measured out. It's very mathematical. Um, and then the dyed warps are put on the loom and they are woven. And so you get this lovely pattern with slightly fuzzy edges. We call that ikat, which is an Indonesian name. Thais call it mutmi. And that's the queen's favorite style of village textile. So a lot of her clothes are mutmi. And so she went to Belma, who was who remained her couturier until his death in 1982 and said, you know, make me some clothes out of this. And she sent him the fabric and you can see him starting to experiment with it. And it took him a while. 
to figure out exactly how to use this very different, very strongly patterned textile. And so the early attempts, we think the earliest of the Motmi clothes were delivered to her in uh, 1972. And the Support Foundation wasn't created until 1976. So this is actually pre-support that she was wearing this. And they're, they're sweet and they're charming, but they don't have quite the level of sophistication the work that Bauman had done for her to date had had. But by the time you get to the late 1970s, he'd figured it out. And so her Matmi clothes are just as sophisticated and just as beautifully embroidered as uh, the clothes made out of European textiles. And so she essentially turned these very humble fabrics into haute couture. And I will say those are some of my favorite designs because, you know, the 60s, 50s and 60s, you know, has this very specific, very sophisticated look. But when you start looking at her wardrobe in the 70s and 80s, it becomes so vibrant and so colorful just such exquisite pieces. And again, dress listeners, you see this transition in the book um, because all of these garments still survive. And I wanted to tell you, Melissa, that I I did like a Google search or I guess a keyword search in Vogue um, for Queen Syndicate. And one of the articles that came up was um, her in blue jeans uh-huh. <laughs> in yep. the 1964. Um, and Vogue was citing her as, as one, and she, it was a wonderful kind of, you know, I guess intimate maybe behind the scenes moment of this rare photograph of her in casual clothing playing with her children. Um, I, I thought that was really sweet and refreshing. It is, but that was not an official occasion. She no, was at it home was with not. the kids. <laughs> so even queens get to kind of relax a little bit in yeah. the yeah. hours. So the Queen's many contributions to the promotion and preservation of Thai textile and dress traditions culminated in the creation of the Queen Syndicate Museum of Textiles in Bangkok, uh, and that started rolling in 2003. It officially opened in 2012. Melissa, can you please tell us about this museum and your role in making it a reality? This is, I mean, this has to have been one, like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I mean, it's incredible, this experience that you had. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I'm very grateful to whatever gods are out there <laughs> that that brought this project my way. And so I was contacted in 2004 initially by a Thai architect, a man named Jay Sirirachimrong, who asked if I would be interested in in consulting on a new museum of textiles to be built in Bangkok. And I met with him and I made him a proposal and nothing happened for several years. But in 2006, they were ready. It took several years for things to kind of get themselves going because the museum is in a 19th century building that needed a lot of work. And so between 2004, when the initial contact was made, and 2006, when I first officially came on the scene, the building had been emptied and it had been gutted, and they were starting to figure out how to design the museum inside. So I connected with my very good colleague and friend, Dale Gluckman from Los Angeles, who was also, by the way, my uh, co-author on In Royal Fashion. Dale and I together began work 
on the Queen's Theatre Kit Museum. So our first job was to advise Jay on how to develop spaces that were textile specific, because that is our expertise. We are textile and dress historians. We both uh, worked in museums for a lot of years. I was at the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco. Dale was at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. We both were at our museums during projects when things were being built and renovated, so we'd had that experience. And so I think we were, in fact, a good fit for this project. So for the first 18 months, we worked with Jay on developing recommendations for what five specific textile connected spaces would be. That was storage, registration, which is where um, things are processed when they come in or when things go out for loan, the conservation lab, the library, and the galleries. And we took Jay and the museum's then director, Smithy Sidapat, who has uh, now passed away, unfortunately, and the first curator um, on a tour of 25 museums all over the world to show them best and I have to say worst practices as well. (laughs) You know, not all museums have brand new state-of-the-art facilities. And since this was a 19th century building, we wanted to show them how people in old buildings cope with new facilities and old buildings and the challenges that they face. And so we took them to museums in the U.S., we took them to museums in Europe, and we took them to museums in Japan. And they took us to some museums in Thailand as well, so we could get an idea of what facilities in Thailand were like. And so after our first period where the all of the summary reports were done and all of the recommendations were made, they then asked us if we would continue on as consultants for curatorial uh, work, for exhibitions, for sort of developing museum structure a little bit, and also for producing all of their English language text. So from 2009 to 2018, we worked with them on developing the three inaugural exhibitions, one of which was uh, in royal fashion. We wrote all of their English text for exhibitions and for the uh, exhibition catalogs. We then developed the second round of exhibitions. I did Fit for a Queen. Uh, Dale worked on a wonderful Batik exhibition, which is running now, which is called A Royal Treasure, uh, the Batik collection of King Chulalongkorn of Siam. Um, which I highly recommend for any of your listeners who are headed to Bangkok in the not-too-distant future. (laughs) And we did a wonderful international symposium in 2013, which was kind of the international launch of the museum, its introduction to the uh, international museum community at large. It was an amazing project. I feel very privileged to have been involved in it. You know, I was only one of a very large team of people who helped make the museum a reality. There must have been at least a hundred of us working on this. In addition to Dale and me, we had a consulting conservator, Julia Brennan, who's based in Washington. We had a gallery designer, um, Tim Culbert. We had a company called Management in New York, headed by Alicia Chung who did the branding and the graphic design initially. There were all these people who helped to create the museum that you see when you visit Bangkok. And although 
I'm prejudiced. I will admit it. I think it's the best museum in Thailand. I mean, April, I'm, we'll talk about this um, when we end here, but she has been there and cannot say enough wonderful things about it. I mean, what a, a beautiful tribute to this, this woman who has lived this incredible life in fashion and used fashion, you know, really to support and, and elevate and promote her country in so many beautiful and wonderful ways. So, And now it's being preserved for future generations for years and years to come. So it's it's so incredible. And like I said, dress listeners, if we can't all make it to Thailand, we can buy these beautiful books and see for ourselves um, just how incredible these pieces are. And in closing, it, it's one thing to read about these incredible pieces, but it's another entirely to see them in person, as I know you have. Mm-hmm. So... Do you have any personal favorite pieces that, you know, it's you've seen them in photographs, but once you see them in person, is there anything that really spoke to you or any experiences you had with them that you'd like to share? Oh, there's lots of stuff that spoke to me. That's actually one of the wonderful things about working with historic collections in the museum is that you actually get to experience things up close and personal. I'm particularly fond of the dress that is on the cover of Fit for a Queen, which is this amazing white silk satin ball gown that is embroidered in this lovely scrolling sort of neo-18th century style in uh, silver metal thread and crystals and sequins. And it's just, it, it kind of embodies, I think, what people think about when they think of a queen. It's very much a fairy tale queen kind of dress, and it is absolutely one of my favorites. You know, I love the I love just the look that Belmont created for the queen, the sort of very clean lines, the bright jewel tones in her daywear. She's very small, as I said, and those bright colors were used to help her stand out in a crowd. And there's just something really compelling about seeing those those clothes. So, you know, I have lots, lots of favorites, but certainly that ball gown is definitely among them. Melissa, thank you so much for being here. This this has really been a treat and a pleasure. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Cassidy, very much. April, Queen Sarah Kit might have been new to me, but you have actually had the pleasure of visiting this museum in real life. What was it like? I have to say it was Beautiful on all levels. Um, First of all, it's an exquisite building that houses uh, the museum. I think it was built in the 19th century and was a former um, government building. It's it's really, really lovely, and it's on some really nice grounds. But you walk inside, I mean— the day that I was there, and this was many years ago, they happened to have a Thai textile display up and take your breath away. I mean, the beautiful silks, the batiks, the ecots. If you happen to be in Thailand, um, this is a do not miss in my book. Can't make it to Thailand, just listeners? We can thank the museum for having a beautiful website with an English language options. You can head to qsmthailand.org to learn more about this museum and browse our exquisite collections. You will also not be disappointed if you invest in either of Melissa's books in royal fashion or fit for a queen. They are both chock full of information and jaw-dropping imagery. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the sartorial legacy of Queen Sarah Kitt of Thailand next time you get dressed. We do love hearing from you. So if you would like to email us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. 
You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episodes. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.